Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Thanks so much for joining me on Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This week, still looking for the perfect gift. How about the gift of life, the gift of blood. We'll talk with the president and CEO of the Red Cross. Also, we'll hear more about Fork Over Love. They have a brand new campaign started, the Whole Heart Campaign. You can find out about donating to that, and we'll also tell you where they have a food distribution coming up this week. Ruth Corcoran will join us. This week, we're also going to meet Jonathan Pidludzny. He is the Vice President of Academic Affairs, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, and he has the results of a recent poll on learning American history, especially at the college level. It turns out they're not, and he's going to tell us what can be done. We also have Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress, Dawn Webster, joining us. She has some advice for dealing with illness at this time of the year. Starting us off today, the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts is strengthening community through the arts. And Odyssey's Nikki Stone gets the details on the Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program from Nora Johnson. I have met so many creative people and I know so many talented people in Northeast PA who may be stuck on the next step. And I believe that is where this um, Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program in the state of PA can step in and help, plus a grant for possibly $2,000. And to tell us about becoming eligible for that grant, we have Nora Johnson. She is the um, she's with the Pennsylvania Council of the Arts. Um, good morning. How are you, Nora? I'm doing well, Nikki. How are you? I am thrilled to have you on the phone this morning. I love embracing creativity, celebrating talents. And when I saw this come up in Pennsylvania news, I was we gotta be we gotta get on it. We have to talk about this. So Oh, we're so excited for your interest and to tell you more about the uh, creative entrepreneur entrepreneur accelerator program. And so what kind of services are offered through that program? So the goal of the program is to connect creative entrepreneurs, and we can go into the definition of what I mean by that, with existing free uh, small business consulting resources in their community and with uh, the opportunity to receive um, small grant funding to support. 
support the growth and enhancement of their business. So when you're talking about um, um, the, that, what fits in that category, all right, what kind, what kind of businesses can we expect to see pop out of this program? Sure. So, um, and this is a program that is eligible to anyone who is 18 years of age and a current Pennsylvania resident. Um, a creative uh, entrepreneur's business um, must have gross revenue less than $200,000. You can also be somebody who is trying to form a business. So you don't have to be an existing for-profit business. And then um, work that falls under the category of creative entrepreneurship um, through this program includes marketing, architecture, visual arts and crafts, design, film and media, digital games, music and entertainment, and publishing. So it is really broad. and we're very trying broad. To, yeah, we're trying to illustrate, you know, we're trying to encourage as many folks who are working within these fields already or um, trying to get a business off the ground uh, to um, be aware and take advantage of business consulting so they can grow their businesses and, um, you know, have a, a thriving uh, ability to make a living and to contribute to their community and help make their communities um, vibrant places uh, for people to live and work and visit. When I look at some of the, the categories, too, you also have digital games, music, and entertainment included in there, uh, which mm-hmm. really, I mean, it's a very big area. Where I get confused is, though, uh, on when you talk about this, how will some of these benefit low-income areas? How can they benefit low-income areas? Um, some examples of how they would be, be doing something like that. When we're talking about uh, determination of um, prioritization, that we believe that businesses can contribute to their communities. It's, the communities across Pennsylvania, whether it's tiny uh, whether it's low income, whether it's, whether it's already thriving. Um, these are piece, places that people want to be able to live, to raise their families, to work, to make a living and to exist and to enjoy life. And um, if you are able to access funding to help you grow your business in your community, you are investing in your community, you're paying taxes in your community, you're um, you know, going out to dinner in your community, you're sending your, your kids to school in your community, there's all kinds of ways that you're um, investing in your community by being um, you know, a, a person who is making a living through your creative entrepreneurship. Okay. It's not does just that about, yeah, that makes more sense. That does make more sense because I'm thinking, do you have to be able to hire people? Are you supposed to be offering some services that people can become involved? That's what I wasn't, I wasn't sure about, you know? Um, oh, sure. And those are certainly other, you know, beneficial components of small businesses and communities, but it's really um, the ability to start or grow your business and to start making a living off of your business, hopefully. Um, that we see as a real benefit to communities. Um, we believe at the Council on the Arts that um, the creative sector is an invaluable piece of um, how Pennsylvania communities have been and continue to be great places for people to live and to work and to visit. And um, and we believe that the arts and the creative sector play a key role in that. So that's, uh, that's a big part of what this is about. Now, has this been done in the past? Has anything like this been done in the past? 
So um, not the pairing, to our knowledge, uh, we have not seen a program that pairs both business consulting and um, small grants to creative entrepreneurs. So there's a, the Colorado Creative Industries, which is um, an arts agency out in Colorado, obviously. Um, they had a program where they were giving small grants to creative entrepreneurs. There are um, folks around Pennsylvania, um, in PA Wilds, um, out in Pittsburgh, et cetera, who are uh, offering a variety of very valuable business consultation programs for creative entrepreneurs. But, we, but this one uh, kind of tries to do both. Um, so I think that's well, I think a lot of times when somebody has a talent or cre- some sort of creativity, now architecture is one thing. I grew up the daughter of... Um, an architectural engineer. Um, that's one thing that you can make a, a huge career out of it. But when it comes to other arts, some people just look at them as their ho- their hobby, dreaming that they can make it into a business, dreaming that they can they can grow it, but don't know how to take the steps in order to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's think- where the small business Associ- um, administration comes in to help. The Pennsylvania Council on the Arts is a state agency. Uh, We're located in Harrisburg. We're under the governor's office. We have 14 regional partner organizations around the state um, that help us administer and re-grant some of our funding. So the first step uh, for folks who are interested in taking advantage of the Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program is for somebody to hop on our website at arts.pa.gov and then we have a link to the Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator Program page, and they can find uh, information on how to get in touch with their Pennsylvania partner in the art regional partner organization. Now, you're in Luzerne County, is that correct? Well, um, the station's in Luzerne County, but we serve uh, Luzerne, Lake Iwana, Wyoming, uh, Columbia, the northeast region of Pennsylvania. Okay, our partner re- our partner organization for most of the, those counties is the Northeastern Educational Intermediate Unit 19, and then the Community Giving Foundation also services some of those counties. So the easiest thing to do is for people to go to our website and find the list of partner organizations and see what county services their, um, see what organization services their county. Their area. When, yeah, and when you get in touch with your with that partner organization, they will connect you with small business development center or small business consulting resources uh, specific to where you're located. Those folks will help with business consultation, business plan review, et cetera. And once uh, a creative entrepreneur goes through that business consultation process, then they're eligible for um, a grant up to $2,000 to um, grow or start their business. So what kind of businesses are you expecting to see come out like to, to um, go into looking for these grants and, and that extra help? It's not just architectural. It's not just marketing. Um, what other I mean, I see a lot of crafters, a lot of, you know, people that work with wood, people that make jewelry, people that do so many different things. And is it limited that if you are crocheting at home, you're not eligible? It's more about, um, no, 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 not at all. So, um, you know, we have those broad categories and then there are a number of disciplines listed under each of those. So, for example, visual arts and crafts. We have galleries, artists, artisans, and makers under that. You do not have to be somebody who is making a living off of your art or your creative 
uh, entrepreneurship discipline at the moment. This is part of what we're trying to do is help people connect with resources to learn how they can establish a business and then make a living off of that business, hopefully, or at least generate uh, income off of it. Now, um, we cap the uh, eligibility limit at gross revenue of less than $200,000. So we don't have a minimum amount that people need to be that, that people have to be earning already in order to be eligible. Right. Uh, and so it's more about, uh, you know, have you, can you demonstrate um, that you're already engaging in a creative discipline of some sort? And then um, that you, when you work with the small business development coordinators, um, they'll be looking to help you develop either a business plan, a basic business plan, maybe help you develop a pitch, help you look over um, the various sort of business models and competitive nature in your region. So basically, um, the idea is, are you already doing something uh, that is under the creative disciplines um, as an individual or as a very, very small business? And are you interested in engaging with consultation to try to create a viable business, essentially? That makes that does definitely make sense, and I think it will help many people, especially those who've been dreaming of. And I think out of COVID, uh, one mm-hmm. good thing that came about is people got to explore their talents a little bit more, and mm-hmm. and think a little bit more about doing something maybe for themselves, mm-hmm. you know. But then they get stuck thinking they can't they don't know how to start and this program is just the a, a wonderful way to kick yourself in gear and get yourself get yourself moving on yeah. um maybe living that dream that you didn't think you can you could do and it doesn't hurt to talk to maybe you sit down and make the business plan and then you decide eh, this seems like i don't i don't i don't really it doesn't hurt to talk to somebody to decide whether you can or you can't that's exactly right, Nikki. Don't and, jump right um, to know, can't. The eligible uses for um, the grant money are, are pretty broad. And, and part of what we're trying to do is address that stigma that I think a lot of people still have um, that, you know, maybe I'm not, I don't know, maybe I have not created like a substantial enough um, business or maybe I, I can't make a living at this or whatever the thing is in your head that says like maybe you, you know, maybe you shouldn't pursue um, this creative dream right. you have or, or something that you're already working And there might be some, I, you know, and maybe some businesses that did start like before COVID and that mm-hmm. COVID might have held up a little and now their mm-hmm. business plan is looking a little bit different and they don't know how to get on to the next level um, right. to move themselves forward because they were moved backwards a bit um, by the whole pandemic. Um, this getting some resources, people that you can talk to, to help you go on to that next level is always helpful as well. I think that's entirely correct. And, you know, we want people to know that these existing resources are there uh, to take advantage of. You know, I think sometimes people feel like, well, maybe that's not for me. Maybe the Small Business Development Center or whatever the organization is um, only wants to talk to me if I want to start like a, I don't know, like a like a storefront business or something that's like, um, you know, like a, a, a really sort of elaborate uh, traditional business venture. But these are resources that exist for 
small businesses and, and entrepreneurs of all sizes and, and disciplines. And even so. ones that think outside the box. Yeah. <laughs> even yep, when, exactly. you know, and I have, I, forgive me, but I didn't even know we had a Pennsylvania Council on the Arts, and I'm one of those artsy writer type of people, you know, <laughs> and no clue. I do, and when I was in high school, interviewed with the Governor's School of the Arts at least twice. So, oh, wow. interviewed, never got in, but I interviewed, which is an honor <laughs> from what I understand. Yeah, that is significant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does our Governor's School of the Arts still exist? Um, I do not believe it does any longer, unfortunately. Uh, man, but, um, but, but um, the, yeah, the Council of the Arts has been around for um, uh, about 55 years at this point. We're under the governor's office, and um, we, you know, this Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator uh, program is just one of the things that we offer to creative entrepreneurs, to the creative sector, to nonprofits, etc. So um, the entrepreneur program is for specifically people that are looking to set up a for-profit business, but we give out, um, you know, a multitude of grants to, uh, to support arts and education, to support um, any number of disciplines in the arts, uh, museums, uh, all sorts of institutions and organizations across Pennsylvania. Well, it's well worth checking out for the new entrepreneurs, the creative craft entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah. It is, uh, they are online, arts.pa.gov, arts.pa.gov. You'll get the information you need about the, so when I go in here and I click on Creative Entrepreneur Acceleration, program mm-hmm. it would click right on there they apply for i wouldn't do the apply for a grant yet until maybe i talk to a few people and then you apply for the grant so what you do is you connect with um the regional partner organization in, in your area and then they will guide you to small business consultation after you go through the business consultation process then you are eligible for uh, financial resources up to two thousand dollars so that's the sort of process there. So just do that arts.pa.gov and click on that Creative Entrepreneur Accelerator program to learn more. Nora Johnson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to discuss this with uh, the crafty and talented people of Northeast PA. We are thrilled to have your interest. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks once again to Odyssey's Nikki Stone and Nora Johnson with the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. A reminder, if you would like to learn more, you can visit their website, arts.pa.gov. When we come back, we're going to find out about learning American history in the classroom. Or are we? Jonathan Pidlozny is here, and he'll have more on that next on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. I'm Paula Dagnan. This time, we're going to be hearing from Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress. She'll have some advice for dealing with illnesses at this time of the year. But we start off by introducing you to Jonathan Pidlozny. He is the Vice President of Academic Affairs, American Council of Trustees and Alumni. He has results of a recent poll on learning American history, especially at the college level. He says... It's not happening like you would think. So what can be done? Jonathan explains. Jonathan, give me a little bit of the background of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. 
Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, so the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, or ACTA, uh, we've been around for 26 years now, and we've been working on issues of curricular reform, academic freedom, and governance accountability the whole time. We've always taken a special interest in civics education, and we've been publishing, for example, surveys about civic literacy the entire time. We're really one of the organizations that helped to raise uh, awareness of the growing civic illiteracy in the country. That is a very interesting statement. Civic illiteracy. How do you look at that? Where does that come from? (laughs) No, great great question. And that's really the reason why we published the the report. But let's start with the problem. Uh, You know, we do surveys often and we look at, uh, you know, whether or not college graduates and uh, just the general American population can answer very basic questions about uh, the American Constitution, American history and our institutions. And so our most recent survey in 2019, and we did it with the National Opinion Research Center, um, we found that only 18 percent, and this is college graduates, 18 percent of college graduates could identify James Madison as the father of the Constitution, and that's on a multiple-choice question. 51% of college graduates did not know the term lengths for U.S. senators and representatives, and only 12% could identify the third 13th Amendment as the government action that free all the slaves. Right, so, we, so we have a crisis in civic education, and we're trying to understand, A, where is it coming from, uh, where's the problem, and uh, B, what can we do to solve it? Wow. It just seems as though there's so much there. What happened? Where where did all this fall apart? Yeah, I mean, great question. Um, so we do two things uh, routinely. We look at whether or not U.S. colleges and universities are requiring all students to complete a foundation foundational course in U.S. history or government. And uh, we find that today only about 18% of the 1,100 universities we look at do have such a requirement. It's actually ticking up slowly right? as as more and more uh, state legislatures become aware of the problem. Um, So that's a good thing, but it's still only 18%. The new report that we're just releasing this week looks at the history major and how it's changed over time going back to 1952. And so here we looked at the top 25 liberal arts colleges, the top 25 national universities, so that's the Harvard, Princeton, Yale group, and then the top 25 public universities. Um, and we found that very few require history majors to complete a, a broader foundational course in U.S. history. So, for example, only one of the top 25 national universities require history majors to require uh, to complete a, a course in U.S. history. And that's a problem because, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of our Educators, right? They receive a lot of their content education in uh, the history department, public servants, lawyers. They're all going through those departments. And so we think that that's one of the sources of our, of our current problem. I guess I, I just can't, I can't imagine having a history major not having that kind of a background. Do, do a lot of the colleges expect them to bring this with them from high school and from grade school, even when so many things change every day? You know, I I can't speak to whether or not there's a widespread assumption that people will come in knowing this kind of thing. There are a couple of university systems that require all students to pass a civic literacy exam in order to graduate. And so, I mean, you can you find this in Georgia, you find this in Florida uh, for public institutions. Uh, but generally speaking, history departments have become hyper specialized, and they allow students to kind of chart their own course. Often, they require that students take courses outside of Europe and outside of America, but they don't. Generally, require students to complete that basic course in American history. So we think hyper-specialization is one of the problem. And there's also been a drift or a, a deliberate move um, to focus on social history, so uh, so the history of groups, as opposed to um, 
political history or military history or intellectual history or legal history or intellectual history. When you're talking about the whole idea of history, American history, a lot of it has to do with the elections. And now we're hearing so much more about especially college students on campuses, starting to get more interested in the electoral process. So is there any kind of a correlation between the two that maybe that will get American history back in? Or is it all just going to not ever get back together again and they're going to be making decisions on what they think they know? Yeah, I mean, so many, so many great points in in the question. I guess the thing I'd start with is there's an there's an immense hunger for American history, right? and we know that because works of American history, sometimes written by non-historians, they're always on the New York Times bestseller list lists, right? And so, so history, American history, American biography. I mean, these are bestsellers. Um, however, when you look at the history department, you see enrollments declining, and enrollments are actually declining faster than any other discipline in the social sciences and the humanities. So I think one of the reasons for that is the history, history departments aren't teaching America's political history anymore, right? And so I think people are going elsewhere to learn about the country's history, and so that's obviously good. However, I think one of the problems that we see today is that as people look to, you know, the New York Times 1619 Project, for example, uh, for their history, they're learning a history that sort of supports a particular political agenda. And more and more, conservatives and liberals have different histories, right? Different understandings of the country. And we think that's one of the things that's contributing to our partisan divide and our coarsening political dialogue, because we lack a a fact-based shared context, historical context, for our political discussions. So we really think that's what we need to focus on, right? Rebuilding a shared fact-based historical context to structure our, our political deliberations. And of course, I have to go back and ask the question because it's everywhere, social media and all of the pop culture. And you have things like Hamilton, which has brought in thousands of people. In to Broadway, and so there's there's an example of history. Many years ago, of course, 1776, another Broadway show. But are they really getting the real the reality of it, or again, is that mixed in with pop culture? And I don't think, hopefully, Jonathan, we're not going to be singing the Constitution in order for people to learn it at some point, or is that not too far-fetched? Yeah, well, you know, we make this point in the report, right? I I think the fantastic success of Hamilton as a musical is a great thing. Um, It's actually based on an 800-page biography of Alexander Hamilton that really reinvigorated academic study of this incredibly impressive and important founder. And so our hope is that as these things do sort of penetrate into the popular culture, those who get interested will go and learn more and they'll look to the academic historians to do that. I mean, I remember I was actually teaching political science and I taught our foundational course in American um, politics at the time that Hamilton was released. Students loved it, right? And it provoked all kinds of questions. So I think that's a great thing and I hope we'll see more of it. Before I have to let you go, anything that you would like our listeners to know, Jonathan, anything that they can do in order to get this resurgence happening? 
Absolutely. Well, first of all, we just released the report this week. So please, uh, you know, visit goacta.org to download a digital copy or request a free print copy. Um, in terms of what you can do, um, states are passing new mandates that public universities require all students to complete a course in U.S. history or U.S. politics, a good foundational course. And so legislators are acting. They know this is a problem. And so contact your legislator and, you know, express uh, express your enthusiasm for, you know, for, for people in Pennsylvania or for legislators in Pennsylvania uh, to follow the lead of Florida, um, Oklahoma, and Georgia. Thanks once again to Jonathan Pidlesny, Vice President of Academic Affairs, American Council of Trustees and Alumni. And it just so happens that the Pennsylvania Courts recently launched an educational digital toolkit aimed at helping students learn about the work and the role of the state's judiciary. You can find out more by visiting pacourts.us and look under Media Resources. Up next, it is the holiday time, and who wants to be sick now? Dawn Webster, Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress, has some advice. Dawn Webster, back with us again. Dawn, I, I don't envy you at all being in the medical profession, especially at this time of the year, because there are so many, and now with all these other things that are coming, but... We still deal with all of those that we are used to every time this time of the year arrives. You know them. Where do we start? You're right. There are so many things right now. So there's the flu. There's COVID. There's the regular run-of-the-mill cold. There's strep throat, ear infections, upper respiratory infections, sinusitis, bronchitis, a whole slew of things. So many of these have overlapping symptoms and you don't know what you're getting unless let's say every year you're predisposed to bronchitis and that may start to come on usually around November, December, but sometimes when kids are going back to school. But how do you even know what you're going to be calling your doctor or stopping by to see you at MedExpress and say, I think I have Sure. So the, the the one thing I would say that is that's very important and it really helps differentiate signs and symptoms from one illness to another is a fever. So not many cold viruses cause a fever. The flu often does cause a fever. COVID can sometimes cause a fever, but the run-of-the-mill cold typically does not. So sore throat, runny nose, coughs, headaches, you're pretty much going to get those with any cold, any flu, potentially COVID. If you have those and you start running a fever, that's a sign it may be something a little bit more serious. So that's the first thing to look for. So is the fever. The second thing you want to look for is you want to look at how long you've had these symptoms. So if it's been a day, if it's been two days, No need for concern yet. You can try the -the over-the-counter medicine, get lots of rest, drink chicken noodle soup, take care of yourself, stay home, give your body time to feel better. If it starts lasting longer than four, five days, then you start to worry about some other things. Are you getting dehydrated? Are you running a fever? So you have to look at the duration of symptoms, which means how long they're lasting. You also have to look at whether or not they're coming with a fever. 
And then you have to start looking at some other symptoms. So typically by that time, it's going to kind of morph. If it's an ear infection, you're going to start having pain and pressure in your ears. If it's strep throat, which is also a bacterial infection, it's going to really focus in on that throat pain. So really, the first couple days of all of these, you may feel the same. Achy, headache, cough, runny nose. After a couple days, you want to look for the fever and you want to see where those symptoms are kind of focusing in on. When we're talking about, again, all of the I don't want to call them typical because that's that kind of downplays them. But still, things like bronchitis, strep throat, they're not typical. But at the same time, if you've had those kind of things before, is that maybe giving you a better heads up as to what is exactly going on in your body? Yes, absolutely. So people that get strep throat every year, and it's not very common in adults, but it is more common in kids. So if someone's child gets strep throat every year, they may come in and say, he's only had a sore throat for a day. He already has a fever and he has his breath smells like strep. So obviously if someone is a parent and they've never had a child with strep before, they're not going to know what that means. But if that little boy gets strep every year and every year that mom or dad smells it on their breath and they get diagnosed with it, that's a good indication. So yes, absolutely. Or same with ear infections. Someone has a two-year-old. He didn't sleep last night. He's been pulling on that ear all night. He has a fever. This is how he always starts with his ear infections. So yes, absolutely. If someone is prone to something, then typically they, and parents know their kids too. I mean, we always listen to parents. If if that's how they typically start, then we would never say, oh, it's not an ear infection. We're not going to look in his ears. Typically parents are right. Well, and parents, again, are paying close attention to their children. Sometimes they don't pay as close attention to themselves because another one of those things, especially with kids, is that barky kind of cough. And so where do you go with that one? Yes. So the barky cough, the seal-like cough is what we call it, is a hallmark of of croup. Croup is also a viral infection which means, unfortunately, antibiotics aren't going to help it. But the most important thing with croup is comfort. So, unfortunately, that barky cough gets worse at night. So, the child's not sleeping, they're barking, they're keeping up their parents, their siblings, they're miserable. So, it typically is a pretty pretty miserable illness for that reason. A lot of times, they're fine during the day. It's not till bedtime that that cough really kicks in and, and just makes everyone miserable. So some of the things you can do to help that. So um, go in the bathroom and and run the shower. Run a hot shower, sit in the bathroom, let that steam help. The steam's going to really help. The other thing that we recommend is actually going outside. Put a coat on the kid, take them outside, let them breathe in that cool, moist air. So those are two things that help a ton with the symptoms, especially because if it does get worse in the middle of the night, a lot of times you're not going to be able to get a hold of the doctor or the pediatrician. All right, let's take it back to parents now, because as I said, we know our kids, but sometimes we don't pay attention, although we do kind of know ourselves. When does it get to a point when we have to say, I know fever is one of them, but are there other really key signs that say, I need to make a phone call, I need to make an appointment, I need to go see somebody? Sure. So 
you know, like we talked about earlier, you definitely want to look at the fever. And if it's, if it's a low fever, if it goes away with Tylenol or Motrin, you can probably sit on it for a couple of days. But if you start to feel weak or dizzy, or you do start to throw up and, and you can't keep liquids down, then you have to worry about dehydration. And that's a whole nother issue. So those are all warning signs. But if, if it's just, a, you know, the cough, the runny nose, the headache, the aches, if it lasts longer than five or six days, you're going to want to get checked. And as far as medications are concerned, again, you've mentioned what isn't a what isn't able to be treated with an antibiotic. So you get to the doctor and you say, well, why aren't you putting me on an antibiotic? Sure. So viruses like the flu, like COVID, those are not going to be fixed with antibiotics. However, if you do have influenza, the seasonal flu, there are antiviral medications that your doctor may prescribe depending on your risk factors, your age, all sorts of things, how bad your symptoms are. And then there's also always symptomatic relief. So if you have a terrible cough, they can give you a cough medicine. If you have um, sinus pressure or a runny nose. So we always look at the symptomatic relief also. But really one of the best things to do is just kind of rest take it easy and let your body heal. And I'm going to give you the $200,000 question. (laughs) How do we prevent all this? So prevention is always best, but so hard. Again, back to my basics, hand washing. Always, always, always wash your hands. Um, If you cough, if you sneeze, if you blow your nose, make sure you're doing that in a Kleenex and throw it away, wash your hands, wash off, commonly touch surfaces. If you're sick, try not to go around anyone if you can help it. Take lots of vitamin C, lots of zinc. Um, A multivitamin is also a great thing to to take every day. And then healthy, balanced diet, lots of sleep and lots of exercise. Thanks to Dawn Webster, the Advanced Practice Clinician Director with MedExpress always has some great advice. Now don't go away. Coming up next, we're going to talk about Fork Over Love. They have a food distribution coming up this week and a brand new campaign. And we'll also be hearing from the President and CEO of the Red Cross. That's Gail McGovern. And she has the perfect gift idea, the gift of life, the gift of blood. More on Special Edition next. Next on Special Edition, Ruth Corcoran is here. She's a member of the Board of Directors of Fork Over Love. She's going to tell us about how it all got started, and then I'm going to tell you where their distribution is this week as well as about their whole heart campaign. Fork Over Love is a nonprofit that purchases meals from small, independent local restaurants, and then we distribute them throughout the community for free. We go into various smaller communities, Wilkes-Barre, Pittston, Nanticoke, and we distribute this, these meals on a weekly basis. And to date, we've distributed more, more than 14,000 meals, and we've put more than $140,000, $145,000 back into our local restaurant community. How did this all come about? Well, it was the idea of a friend, Tracy Salingo, who brought a group of women together to kind of form this nonprofit. Um, she was trying to come up with a solution for the dilemma that the restaurants were doing so poorly and that there were so many people in our community in need. And it just seemed like a natural fit. You know, we have these restaurants that needed the business and people hungry 
And we just needed to raise the money to kind of bring the two together. Who decides what is going to be coming from what restaurant? Well, we currently work with nearly 70 different local restaurants um, from Hazleton up through Durier. And any restaurant is welcome to go on our website, forkoverlove.org, and apply to cook with us, become a partner. They're paid $10 a piece for each takeout meal they provide. And we, we don't give them something specific, but we do like to have like a protein, a vegetable. It has to be a hot meal. So we're not, we're not distributing sandwiches. And it's, it's up to the restaurant within reason, as long as it's a hot meal. How long have you been around, first of all? And then when the restaurants were first approached, what was their reaction? So we did our first distribution in February of 2021. And we really didn't get going to begin to form it until January of this year. What we do when we go into a community like West Pittston or Nanny Coke, we will look for small local restaurants. We'll reach out and they'll reach out to us. And what about those who might be looking to benefit from Fork Over Love? Someone has to come along and, and vouch for them or how does that work? Absolutely not. The different thing about Fork Over Love is we don't ask for proof of any need. Everyone is welcome. So we see people that really are food insecure and need the food. We see some elderly people who are just coming through because, frankly, they're lonely and want to see a friendly face once a week. And then we're seeing this other segment of the population that's coming through to support the restaurant. So everyone is welcome. That's what makes us different. We're there. These are all takeouts as well? It's all takeouts. So everyone stays in their vehicle. All of our distributions take place at 5 o'clock. We do one a week. They rotate. And we're out in the parking lot. So people will line up in their vehicles. At 5 o'clock, we start distributing. You come through, you pick up your meals, and you're on your way. Do you have to pre-register? We got away from the reservation system because we found, you know, it was difficult for some people who don't have computer access. So we found first come, first serve was a better way to do it. And a lot of what we will distribute, 300 meals up to 500 meals. Some of it depends on if we have sponsorship, if we're lucky enough to get a sponsor for a specific distribution, we'll have more meals. Other than that, it's what we can get together. And most weeks we do make it through. There are weeks where we do run out and it's heartbreaking for all of us to have to say no, but you know, it's just the way it is. And then when we do have extra, if we're lucky enough to have extra, we'll bring it to an organization in the community that can utilize it, whether it's one of the food pantries or Ruth's Place. So nothing ever goes to waste. How would people get in touch with you? On the website, we do have a tab for donations, which we welcome. For $10, you can feed somebody. And we also have a tab for volunteers, and we're always welcoming volunteers. And another tab where you're able to see our upcoming events and our distributions. And it's forkoverlove.org. Or if you do not have computer access, you can call us at 570-331-8362. Thanks once again to Ruth Corcoran for joining us. They have a food distribution coming up this Tuesday, 4.45 p.m. at Kistler Elementary, 301 Old River Road in Wilkesbury. And the Whole Heart Campaign is now underway until the end of the year. For every $10 donation Fork Over Love receives, the donor's name will be added to a heart that will be affixed to a takeout dinner, which has been cooked by and purchased from a 
local restaurant. The meals will be distributed through the holidays and into the new year. You can find out more by visiting their website, forkoverlove.org. The Friends of the Poor has a Christmas food basket giveaway Wednesday, December 22nd at the Armed Forces Reserve Center in Scranton. Blood donations and other ways to help. Here's Gail McGovern, President and CEO, Red Cross. Let's talk a little bit about blood donations because, again, the pandemic, COVID, all of this type of ongoing stuff has really put a big dent in Red Cross blood donations. How have you been dealing with that? Well, Paula, you are exactly right. Um, we're responsible for about 40% of the nation's blood supply, and COVID has made it very, very challenging for us. You know, normally we collect blood at schools, at college campuses, um, at various businesses, and they're, they're sponsoring fewer blood drives because of the pandemic. And we're looking at the lowest inventory that we have had uh, in a, over a decade. And the number of new donors is going down. So we are urging people, urging people to donate blood. And if you donate blood, you'll feel really good about yourself because you'll know that you have saved somebody's life. So it's extremely important, and we're hoping all of your listeners consider making an appointment to donate blood. How can they find out about blood donations that would still be very important no matter when they happen? Well, you are absolutely right, and we would welcome your listeners to get on our website, which is redcross.org, and you can find ways to uh, donate blood and make a blood appointment. You can also find opportunities to volunteer, and you can also make a financial gift, and any gift, regardless of its size, is deeply, deeply uh, appreciated. And I have so much faith in the American public. They always step up for us, and I'm hopeful that that will happen again this year. What exactly is that money going toward? So the money that we collect from the American public helps us respond to multiple disasters, and we certainly have been experiencing them. Uh, And we respond to 60,000 disasters a year. Most of them are home fires. Um, But if you are a victim of a home fire, to you it feels like a Category 4 hurricane. So um, we are very careful with our donors' dollars. We make sure that we're putting them towards our mission. And um, as I said, every gift, regardless of size, is deeply, deeply appreciated. And along the same lines, you also mentioned volunteering. And again, that's been another area that COVID, the pandemic, has really caused a lot of problems with because people are not getting out like they were. So what kind of volunteer opportunities does the Red Cross have available? First of all, I want to thank our volunteers because they answered the call during one of the most active uh, years of extreme weather, and um, some of them actually experienced damage or destruction to their own homes. Um, volunteers can volunteer virtually, they can volunteer in person, um, they can volunteer for days on end or four hour shift, and uh, all of those opportunities are up on our website. And I am just so grateful for the volunteers that helped us this year. They provided people with food, shelter, comfort, and hope. 
Um, and there are virtual opportunities for people to volunteer as well to do with help with case management, provide uh, health and mental health counseling. So uh, we, uh, we love our volunteers. We couldn't fulfill our mission without them. So this time of the year, again, it's almost like a double whammy for the Red Cross when it comes to blood donations because you have holiday time where people may not be donating. You have COVID time. So again, Gail, give us a brief overview of what the country's blood supply looks like right now, how people can find out about donating blood. So we are experiencing a blood shortage and um, our inventory is lower than it's been in a decade. And it's so important for people to give the gift of life. Every blood type is needed. Every unit is deeply, deeply appreciated. And um, it just makes you feel so good after you've donated blood because you have just helped save the life of a person who is in desperate need of blood. And as you pointed out, the holiday season, people get busy they don't make the time. It is so important for people to make the time. And uh, this is the time of year where there a lot of people are on the road. So there's more car accidents, more trauma, um, and hospitals really do need blood. They need blood all year round, but during the holiday season, it becomes even more important because we need more people to turn out to donate blood. And the website is very easy to use. It's easy to make an appointment. And we also have an 800 number, 1-800-RED-CROSS, that people can call if they want to make an appointment that way. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseballs and boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.